And if you would, take out your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Hebrews. Uh, We've been studying Hebrews for the better part of the last eight months here at First Scott's, working verse by verse uh, through this wonderful book. Uh, And we come to chapter 11. Uh, Chapter 11 is probably the most famous section in Hebrews. It's sometimes known as the Hall of Faith. It, It it shows us in, in uh, the verses of this chapter, some of the, we could call them the heroes of the faith, but what you're going to see over the next few weeks as we study them bit by bit is that they weren't really heroes at all. A lot of them were, were kind of sketchy characters, and yet they're characters who came to saving faith, who came to trust in Christ, and they served uh, for us today, thousands of years later, as pictures of what it means to live a life of faith. So today and next week, what we're going to do is study the foundational verses, the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Today we're going to look at what faith and faithfulness are. And then, Lord willing, we'll look next week at what does it mean for us to be a faithful church? How can First Scots, as a church, be faithful? Now, before I read God's word, let's ask for his blessing. Lord God, uh, apart from your word, we know nothing, and we can do nothing. And Lord, if you are not to reveal your word to us, we would be utterly blind. But you, by your sovereign grace, have chosen to give sight to us, to give us eyes of faith. And with our eyes of faith, it is our plea right now that as we come to your word, we would see Jesus. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you're using the Bible in your row, uh, Hebrews 11 is found on page 1007. Now listen to God's word, Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In 1839... John Williams and James Harris went as missionaries from the London Missionary Society and landed on the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific Ocean. The Hebrides people were completely unreached by that point with the news of the gospel. And as the ship arrived and dropped Williams and Harris off, they were immediately met by the New Hebrides tribe who proceeded to kill and cannibalize Williams and Harris. When the news of the cannibalistic tribe that inhabited the island spread back to England and Scotland, many who were considering going into the mission field changed their mind. But one man was not deterred, 34-year-old missionary John Payton from Glasgow, 
had served as a missionary to the poor in Glasgow for some time and uh, developed a, a, a wonderful reputation for his gospel labors, decided that, that he sensed the Lord calling him to the New Hebrides. Uh, but most people tried to discourage him. They felt that going to an island of cannibals was too great of a risk, and they pleaded with him to stay. Peyton wrote about one such conversation. He said, amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument was the cannibals. You'll be eaten by cannibals. At last, I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving the honor of the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by worms or by cannibals. That's faith, isn't it? Uh, Peyton did go, and through much danger and difficulty, was finally accepted by the Hebrides people. And one of the first things that he did as the mission, first missionary into that tribe was to learn their language so he could write the scriptures. And so after a number of years of being with them, he was translating the scriptures for the islanders. But he was not able to find the word in their vocabulary for faith. He, he did, they didn't have a concept for believing, for trusting in something outside of themselves. So he had no idea how to convey the idea of faith to them. Well, one day he's, he's working in his hut translating a native that he had developed a good reputation uh, with, good relationship with, had, had been out hunting, came in exhausted and flopped down in a chair. And he said to Peyton something like this, it is so good to cast all myself, all my weight in this chair. And Peyton had his word. Faith is resting your whole weight on the character of God. That word went into the translation of their New Testament, and many of the natives came to saving faith in Christ. Faith is putting your whole weight onto God and His Word. You know, Peyton wasn't the first to, to struggle with trying to define faith, it's a multifaceted, complex word. You and I were so accustomed to it. This is a quote, culture of faith in many ways, we probably never really have thought about what it means or how we would define it. Uh, and I wonder if we could. You know, my guess is if I were to ask all uh, the people in this room, how would you define faith? I would probably get 150 different answers about what faith is. But I think one of you would have the insight to say, I know what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And I would say, you're cheating. That's from Hebrews 11. You just plagiarized that. But then I would say, but what does it mean? What does that mean that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen? It's hard to define faith. In fact, I don't actually think the author of Hebrews was trying to give a definition here so much as he's giving a description of, of faith. You've got to remember, Hebrews is being written by a pastor who had a flock that, that were raised Jewish. They've come to saving faith. They left 
basically everything behind. They, they probably were disowned by their families. They, they lost the Jewish religious institution. Many of them would have lost their jobs. Some of them lost freedom. They left so much behind. You know, just think of what they left behind in Judaism. They left behind the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices, all these very visible things. And what was beginning to happen is that some of them were growing envious of what they had left behind. You know, I heard a definition of what a sheep is the other day. A sheep is something that always thinks the grass is greener on the other side. And that's exactly what's happening with these Hebrews. They're, they're looking and they're thinking, you know what, we had it pretty good before. Now you add to that the fact that they're starting to be persecuted. This is probably written around the middle of the first century, and persecution is just heating up. So if you look back at last chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 32, the author says, you've had hard struggles with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. And if you were to go on to verse 34, some of them have had their, plop, their property plundered. Others have gone to prison for their faith. And so what's happening is they think, you know, there's this threat of persecution, and we kind of miss some of the trappings of Judaism. We're just not sure it's worth it. And some have begun to depart from the faith. And, and, and it's already been explained to us. They left because their faith was not sincere faith. It, it, was, it was a shallow, superficial faith, but it wasn't faith that, that, that changed the core of their being. But chapter 10, if you remember, it ended on a positive note, verse 39. But we, I think he's talking to the congregation particularly, we, those of you who are left, are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's the context of of chapter 11. Not so much trying to define faith, but to describe what the life of faith looks like, both to encourage the storm-battered saints who are just trying to make it through another day and to warn those who themselves may be thinking about turning away. And what he does, what the author does is he says, you know, you're not the first to be in this boat. You just need to look back to the Old Testament. It is full of saints who experienced great persecution and trial and difficulty and look to them as a a picture of how to endure in the faith. This morning, we're going to look at at three things from these two verses. The first is what faith is, and we're also going to look at what faith is not. We're going to look at the counterfeit to try to determine what the real thing is. Second, what faith does. And then third, what does faithfulness look like as believers? So first, let's try to understand what faith is. And and we're going to start by looking at wrong ideas of faith. I'm going to assume you've been exposed to all of them. So first, faith is not just a generic catch-all for all religious people. Uh, Sometimes people will say, I'm a person of faith. You know, we're all people of faith. Even the atheist is putting his faith into something. He's putting his faith in that there is not a God. We're all people of faith. The question is, what's your faith in? It's not just a generic catch-all. You know, one of the titles of the monarch of England is the defender of the faith. 
And so when newly crowned King Charles III took that title, he described his duty this way. He said, it is the duty to protect the diversity of our country, including by protecting the space for faith itself and its practice through the religions, cultures, traditions, and beliefs to which our hearts and minds direct us as individuals. So in his mind, faith is all sorts of things. Now, to be very clear, in Hebrews, faith is in Jesus Christ to the preserving of our souls. There are only two kinds of faith, faith that's in Christ and faith that is not. So this is not generic faith, it's faith that's specifically in Christ. It's also not just a feeling or an experience. It grieves me when people talk about looking for churches, how often they talk about the experience. And what they're talking about is sort of the entertainment aspect of it, the show aspect of it. And they'll say, I could just feel God there. Maybe so. I don't discount that as a possible reality, but oftentimes the places people claim to feel God are doing things that are contrary to the scriptures. Uh, You know, a lot of times, if you were to look at a picture of a contemporary worship service that's emotional and experiential and look at a picture of a Grateful Dead concert, you wouldn't be able to tell which one's which. Because it's not about the substance of the faith, it's about an emotional experience. That's not what faith is. Third, faith's also not a blank check. You've heard prosperity gospel preachers just say, name it and claim it. It, it, Whatever you call out to God for, he is obligated to do for you. And faith's not a blank check where we name it and claim it and God is obligated to grant our wishes. In fact, if God were ever at any point obligated to grant my wishes and answer my prayers, I would not pray a thing because the last thing I want is my will to be done. So faith is not a blank check. Faith's also not simply faith in church membership. And you hear that sometimes. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a member at First Scots Presbyterian Church. I'm a member at First Baptist Church. I'm a member at... And, and people believe that just because they're on the rolls of a church, that must mean they're on the rolls of heaven. That's not true. There are many in the visible church that will not be in the church triumphant. There are many on the rolls of churches today who do not yet belong to Jesus Christ. And so faith is not merely faith in church membership. That's what the Hebrew church was facing. And back in chapter 10, he gave a stark warning to them. Uh, He said uh, to those who have once been active in the church and abandoned it, he said, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Some thought or pretended they were Christians simply because they were members of a church. And he says, listen, that's a dangerous thing, and you need to repent right now. Another thing faith is not, is the last one, faith is not blind. I think that's what non-believers think of faith, that it's just blindly following something, sort of a, a fantasy, something that we know is not really true. It's a myth that we choose to believe. The atheist Stephen Hawking once claimed religion is a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. 
I think you and I know that atheism is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the light, isn't it? Faith is not blind. Faith is actually the opposite of blind. Faith is the thing that really sees. It's looking beyond what our eyes can see so that we entrust ourselves to the unseen God. Think of it this way. Humans ordinarily have five senses uh, through which we interpret the world. And so light waves come and they make contact with my eye and and it tells me, my eye tells my brain what I'm seeing. Or sound waves come to my ears and my my brain translates it into hearing. But there's an entire aspect of reality that that transcends our five senses. It's something that cannot be measured. It can't be seen with physical eyes. It it, It can only be grasped by faith. It's what the world that is revealed to us in Scripture. And there are certain things that I can't empirically test, and yet because they are in Scripture, I know that they are true. And so what lies beyond my senses isn't fantasy, but it's reality in its truest form. So it's not that, that we see things as people of faith, faith in Christ. It's not that we see things that aren't there. It's that the world cannot see what is there. It doesn't have eyes to see what is there. And what faith does is it reaches into that dimension that exceeds our senses and grabs hold of God through his promises. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie National Treasure. And if, if you've seen it, you know Nicolas Cage can't act, but it's still a really good movie. But in it, they're, they're hunting for treasure, and they find a treasure map. And at first glance, it's, it doesn't have the answers they need. It doesn't tell them what they need to know. Well, then they find these glasses, and these glasses have sort of a, a decoder lens on it. And they look at the map and see all this stuff that nobody else could see. It's a picture of what faith is. It's not that we're seeing things that aren't there, but we can finally see what is there because we see in Scripture the unseen God. Or or that's why Hebrews here calls it the evidence or the proof of things not seen. It's not a shadow. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotive experience. It's confidence that you can rest in the promises of the unseen God. The Puritan Robert Layton says, the carnal mind sees God in nothing, not even spiritual things. The spiritual mind sees God in everything, even natural things. The carnal mind sees God in nothing, not even spiritual things. The spiritual mind sees him in everything, even natural things. Uh, therefore, this God must not be a God of our own making, for he could not sustain us. He could not uphold us. The substance of our faith must be in Jesus Christ through his revealed word. This is how we know God, and that's how we fully cast ourselves upon him, not some God of our imagination, but the God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture. And you and I have no ability to uh, produce that in ourselves, 
no more than a blind person can will himself to see. The Holy Spirit does this. The Heidelberg Catechism says of true faith, and don't try to write this down, it's too much. You can Google it later. True faith is created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. It's not only a conviction, knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, but also deep-rooted assurance that not only others, but I too, have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace earned for us by Christ. If Christ is not at the center of our faith, then our faith is completely vain. It is completely misplaced. And so the, the author of this letter, he is saying, Beloved, I know you're, you're being tossed in the storms of life and, and, and Satan is tugging at you in every way, but cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. Cast the fullness of your weight upon him and he will uphold you. You know, faith requires that we preach to our own souls because our eyes are constantly going to tell us things. Our, our rational, rational minds are going to tell us things about the world that seem to contradict Scripture. And so what we do in faith is to claim the promises of God that, the eyes, uh, that our physical eyes might not be able to see, but the eyes of our heart can by faith. You know, the, the Romans, for example, the Romans were another church being persecuted heavily. And in Romans 8, some of them see death coming soon. And the Apostle Paul knows death's coming for him soon. What does Paul say to people who he describes as being like sheep led to a slaughter? Listen to Romans 8.32. He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying, you know, this God that you trust for eternity, trust him today too. Uh, your faith can only find a resting place in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if God loved us so much that he gave his own son and Christ endured the hell of the cross, you and I can trust him with our daily lives as well. And so Paul says to him, I know you're staring down the barrel of persecution and death, but trust Christ because he, he will not let you down. He will not let you go. You know, we, we often talk about somebody has really strong faith. And I know what we mean by that, but strong faith is sort of a strange idea. Because it's actually when we find out how weak we are that we realize how strong Christ is. When we are weak, then he is strong, and weak faith gets the same strong Jesus as strong faith. And so even if your faith isn't very strong, it's not your faith that matters. It's the strength of Christ that matters. Dear Christian, we must cultivate the eyesight of faith to see the unseen through the promises of God and his word. Now second, let's consider what faith does. 
Oftentimes, people will say, well, my faith's very personal. And, and, and there's a sense where that's true. It's the most integral thing. It's the most core thing about us. But what they really mean is, I have a faith that doesn't affect my daily life. You know, there's no such thing as that. There's no such thing as faith that doesn't affect our lives. In fact, the scriptures tell us the righteous will live by faith. It shapes who we are. That's what, what Romans 11, I mean Hebrews 11 is talking about again and again and again. That faith is an inward conviction that leads to an outward manifestation. It's an inward conviction that leads to an outward manifestation. And so here's what he's saying. Take Noah, for example. Noah truly believed God. He couldn't possibly have gone about this, this tremendous duty, this peculiar duty of building this ark, if not for faith. He's acting upon faith. When God predicted rain, Noah had no concept of what rain was. It's possible that Noah had never heard of a boat. We don't know exactly where he was, but much less a, a gigantic ark that he would spend years and years building. But Noah believed God and acted upon what he believed. And so for 120 years, that's what he was doing. The righteous will live by faith. It appears senseless to the unbelieving world. Undoubtedly, Noah appeared to be a real nut job, didn't he? mocked and ridiculed, but Noah was actually the one who could see. He was actually the one who had sense. The unbelieving world can only do what is right in their own eyes, but the man or woman who trusts in Christ longs to do what is right in God's eyes. Charles Spurgeon says, faith is the foot of the soul by which it marches along the road of the commandments. Faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle, he says. He that obeys God trusts God, and he that trusts God obeys God. Now, somebody might hear that and go, you know, that sounds kind of legalistic. That sounds like, like works salvation, and you know we are saved by grace alone. So you don't worry about works. Well, we are absolutely saved by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We could sooner build a ladder to heaven out of sand than work our way into salvation. But you know, true faith, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but saving faith never remains alone. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you have probably the two most famous verses on the grace of God. But we often stop short of verse 10, uh, which is just as important. Listen to Ephesians 2, starting at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Good news, right? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us that we should walk in them. So, 
True faith never remains alone. It produces obedience. That's what faith does. Look at Philippians. Turn over just one book to the right. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He is not telling you work hard so that you can be saved. He's saying test your life. Is there evidence that God is working in you and transforming, in you, transforming you so that you are doing his will? It's not the cause of our salvation. It's the, the evidence of our salvation. That's the faith that pleases God. That's why verse 2, speaking, it's, it calls the men of old. It's talking about Old Testament saints. It says they received their commendation. In other words, God was pleased with their faith. Why? Because they lived by faith. They obeyed in faith. And many of them died not having seen with their eyes what the sight of faith beheld. That's what faith does. It, It honors and follows God. Now, third... What does the faithful Christian life look like? There's 16 different characters listed in Hebrews 11. We're going to look at them over the next few months. They're all very different. Some are like David. We know a lot about King David, but we know very little about Enoch. We have men like Joseph, who was a paragon of virtue in many ways worth imitating. And we have Rahab, the repentant prostitute. Some, like Noah, died at a ripe old age. Others, like Abel, died as a martyr. Look at what what they all have in common. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Then look at verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. If you're going to remember one thing from Hebrews 11, remember those verses. Their faithfulness looks like a people of whom this world is not worthy. It's not worthy of your affections. It's not worthy of your hope. It's not worthy of your faith. Uh, According to Hebrews, living a faithful life looks like living as strangers and aliens, knowing this world is not worthy of you because your citizenship rests in a greater kingdom. This is a hard calling for many Christians to accept because we've become way too comfortable in this world and we love the comforts and luxuries and amenities of this world. But Hebrews is here to remind us this world is not our home. 
And that's why these people did not turn away in the face of persecution and even martyrdom. Because they weren't living for this world. They, they were able to say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what does it look like? What, what does faithful living look like? It looks like a people who are actively studying God's word in order to cultivate a vision of unseen realities in daily life. Seeing the life through the lens of faith. It looks like people who are grateful for what we have in this world, but we refuse to treat anything in this world as a God because we have a God who is in the world to come that is infinitely greater. It looks like a people who love to serve the Lord Jesus, gladly exchanging the trinkets and toys of this world for heavenly gold. It looks like people who do not fear what others in this world think of us because we know we belong to another world and that the affections of our heart cannot be satisfied by the superficiality of this world. It looks like people who are so convinced of eternal realities that we live our lives in light of them and we open our mouths in proclamation of them. You know, it doesn't mean that you and I have to pack up and go into the mission field. Most of us are not going to be called to live like John Payton, going in and potentially being martyred for our faith. Most of us will never have biographies written about our faith. You know, the Christian life is going to look very ordinary in the world's eyes, but extraordinary in the eyes of heaven. Let's talk for a moment specifically about what faithfulness at First Scots ought to look like. This is going to be our application, and I want you to know these are not arbitrary things that I'm sort of pulling out of the, out of the sky. These are areas where I think we as a church have room for growth, myself included. We have room to grow in these areas, and I'll say them in the form of resolution. First, let us resolve to be faithful in our homes. You know, faithful, godly Christian living begins in the home. It's so easy to be on really good behavior for an hour or two on Sundays, isn't it? But what about the people who see us 18, 24 hours a day? They see our inconsistencies. They see our hypocrisy. They've seen us in the daily grind of life when nobody's looking. Faithfulness begins in the home. And and I say this specifically to families, young families. We live in a culture that outsources discipleship. So go go let the church youth group, go let the Sunday school class, go let the Christian school disciple your children. Those are all wonderful blessings, by the way. Sunday school, youth group, Christian school, wonderful blessings. But you, Dad, are the chief instrument that God has entrusted and obligated with the discipleship of your children. You can't outsource that. 
And, and when you stand before God, it will do you no good to say, well, I sent them to Sunday school. I, I sent them to a Christian school. What more do you want from me, God? We need to be faithful in our homes. And for older families or singles, there still ought to be a regular rhythm of the priority of, of family or personal worship in the home. Studying God's word, praying, singing, whatever it looks like in your home, there needs to be a rhythm of it because we need to be resolved to be faithful first in our homes. Second, uh, let us resolve to be faithful in Lord's Day worship. I'm really glad so many of you are here today because I wasn't sure on New Year's Day how sluggish you'd be or how many excuses it would be easy to come up with not to gather with the saints. Well, let us resolve, and I have great news. There's 53 Sundays this year. 53 times we get to gather with the saints. If you come morning and evening, 106 times you get to gather with the saints to drink in the pure milk of the word on Sundays. Um, there are many in this church who are in worship and under any circumstances unless they are providentially hindered. There are others who find corporate worship negotiable. We will do that as long as nothing better comes up. As long as we don't get a, a better invitation. That's not only neglecting God's command not to forsake the gathering of the saints, but it misses the blessing of corporate worship and the blessing that you may be to others in corporate worship. And so let's resolve to be faithful in Lord's Day worship, Sunday after Sunday. And if you're, you're providentially hindered, if you travel, find a church there. Go encourage the saints there. Third, Let's resolve to be faithful in ministry to the Lord. You know, I, I fear for many, and I, I don't know that that's many in this congregation, but I, know, I fear for many in churches who believe that showing up to church is the sum total of their Christian duty. You know, showing up to church is not so much your service for the Lord as it is preparation for your service to the Lord. Coming to church, participating in the life of the church, the goal of it is to equip you to then go out into the world to do ministry. So we've got school teachers here. You worship and you are participating in the life of the church so that you can then translate that into your classroom, whatever that looks like. We've got uh, parents homeschooling. This is equipping you uh, for the work of ministry. We've got folks that are in business. This is equipping you. We, we have folks that are retired and you, you've sought to make your neighborhood your mission field. Our desire is to equip you with the tools that you need to then do ministry in those spheres that you've been given. Let's resolve to be faithful, to be diligent in our ministry to the Lord, to use our time well. Fourth, let's be faithful in our giving. 
a few weeks ago, we met as a congregation to express our desire to purchase the property next door. We gave you several reasons why we thought that property was important, and we asked you to consider what kind of gift you could give to help make that happen. I was so thankful for so many of you making substantial sacrifices towards that purchase. At the same time, I hope we never have to do that again. Because we don't want, as a church, to float from campaign to campaign to campaign. What we desire is to cultivate, to build a culture of regular tithing. Somebody asked during that meeting a wonderful question. If people just gave 10%, would we have to, would we have to do stewardship campaigns and things like that? And the answer is no. We wouldn't have to because the needs of the church would be met. And, and so I want to encourage each family in the church, as you look down the barrel of a new year, you consider your finances. I want to urge you to give a, a tithe, give 10% as, as, as God has commanded in scriptures, which I guarantee is less than the government's taking from you. And let's resolve to be more faithful in our financial stewardship. And finally, for whatever I've missed in those first four, the fifth is simply, let us resolve by the help of the Holy Spirit to live every moment of 2023 to the glory of Christ every day. Let's pray to God for his help now in that endeavor. Lord God, we praise you for the gift of faith. We thank you that by your grace we are able to see the unseen we're able to hear the unheard because we hear it and we see it through the lens of faith. Father, we have, as a culture, in, in so many ways, we've distilled faith down to a one-time decision, but, but the scriptures never present it that way. You tell us the righteous will live by faith, and that's, that's what you're calling us to is a lifetime of faithful living. Oh, Lord, we pray for your help. That by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we would lean upon you. That we would seek your face in your word day after day for the power and the strength to live godly, faithful lives.